My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 108, which along with Psalm 107, verses 33 to 43, are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, April the 2nd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. Um, I appreciate it. We are looking, continuing a look at Jeremiah's prophecy today, continuing with yesterday's reading, um, which was Jeremiah 23, 1 to 8. Today we're going to be in 9 to 15 verses of that 23rd chapter, also in John's Gospel, the 6th chapter, verses 60 to 71, and then in the book of the Romans, the, the epistle to the Roman church, the ninth chapter, the first 18 verses. So <clears throat> Jeremiah is it, spoken yesterday about the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of the people, the rabbis, the, uh, the priests, the other leaders. And now he says concerning the prophets. He started this argument with condemning the king, Josiah's son Jehoiakim, and then he moves down to the shepherds, and now he's at the prophets. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me, all my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine, because of the Lord and because of his holy words. So he he is overwhelmed in many, many ways because he hears what God has to say. He has just what he said already about the um the king and then about the leaders of the people, and now about the prophets. And what he hears is grinding within him. And and that's why he says, My heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man overcome by wine because of what the Lord has laid on my heart. It's just too much for him because he sees and knows, and he's beginning to have his eyes opened further to what's going on around him. And sometimes we have to be completely disillusioned before we can um, see things rightly, respond rightly, and then order our own lives accordingly. And, and it's a difficult thing. Um, we do build up illusions about things that are going on around us, and we convince ourselves of all kinds of different things. And then sometimes the Lord has to disillusion us so that we can see things in the right way. He said, the land is full of adulterers because of the curse. The land mourns and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. So all that looks good isn't right. And, and this is getting ready to be changed. You can hear the Lord's judgment coming against all these things. Um, it hasn't come yet. They're, they're still in the belief that they're in the right. And it's because they have power and it it's the constant problem of power in human nature. There's always a desire to believe that, well, because I have the power, then what I do is therefore right, whatever right may mean to me. And we see that in government. We see it in the church sometimes. I mean, I told you a couple of weeks ago about a church that I know about in Chattanooga that, that's going by the wayside simply because the person who had the, quote, power, the leader of the church, wielded that power in a way that was wrong. It was immoral, and it was unethical. And I think 
a lot of what we've seen in the world over the last two years is an unethical wielding of power against the electorate. And against, I'm talking about all over the world. I'm not talking about just in America. It has been a tyranny of science that we've lived under for the last two years. And it's been the most confusing thing in the world. And it's been used to divide people one against another. He goes on to say, both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house, I've found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore, their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall. For I'll bring disaster on them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria, which is the, would have been the northern kingdom, which fell a hundred years before, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, the ones I'm speaking to now, I've seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. And he doesn't necessarily mean that they're committing adultery in a physical sense. It's, it's, it's adultery against him. In other words, they're chased after other gods. <clears throat> All of them, he says, have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. It's, 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 there's no, you know, so what happened with the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, he destroyed them. It's that he's saying it's that bad. He said you can't find honest men. You can't find godly men. No, everybody is corrupt, just like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets: Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. So they're not just not caring for the people, they're also prophesying lies, and they're prophesying in their own name and in their own desires. And so they've brought this filth into the land. He said, I saw in Samaria, I saw them prophesying in the name of Baal, and now down here it's even worse in, in Israel at this time in Jerusalem. And so judgment's coming against him, and he's going to bring them down, and he's going to destroy them. <clears throat> in the gospel today remember jesus had been sort of arguing with the people and he had told them yesterday that unless they drink his eat his flesh and drink his blood they didn't have life in them so he's laid out this idea of cannibalism and drinking his blood and all of which would have been just completely abhorrent and unthinkable to the jews when many of his disciples heard it they said this is a hard saying who can listen to it and that's what i was trying to get at yesterday was was is that you know he is that that's a huge ask for them to understand this and to have any earthly idea what he meant by it i mean it, it's one thing to see it and read it from our perspective after the resurrection but it's a completely different thing when he's speaking to these people, they had to have been incredibly confused about what he was talking about. Couldn't even possibly have imagined taking him up on his, quote, offer of how to have life. Says, so these people said, who can hear it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Yeah, would be the answer. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Would that change anything if you saw me ascend to where I was before? And some of these people that heard him this day saw it. They saw him ascend. And we know in the, at the end of Matthew's gospel, we're told that, that some didn't believe 
even at that point, even after the resurrection, some didn't believe even then. He said it was the spirit who gives it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And since we've been studying Romans for the past few weeks, we could say that's exactly what Paul says. The flesh is no help at all. And it's also the same thing that he said to Nicodemus, that you've got to be born of water in the spirit if you want to see the kingdom of God. That, that you've got to be born again, because you've got to be born again spiritually. And that's exactly what Jesus said. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And then parenthetically, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So John said he knew all this all along. He could size people up and figure it out. And, and if, if we want confirmation of that, John tells us in, in chapter 2 that when the first time he goes to Jerusalem with his disciples, that he wouldn't entrust himself to people there because he knew it was in the heart of man. And that's exactly what you see here. That's, that, that's what that parenthetic statement is trying to say. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. And so, in other words, what he's saying is that the flesh is no help at all. You can only come, you can only believe by the power of the Holy Spirit given to you that enables you to believe. I understand how difficult these things are. I understand why you would take offense at these things. That, however, does not invalidate those things. What will validate my words is when the Holy Spirit is given and people like us, 2,000 years later, say, yep, I get it, I get it, I get it. It's absolutely true. And so that's what Jesus is saying is, is that you can't find your way to the Father because of the flesh and the problem of the flesh. The flesh is fallen. It's just the thing that Paul picks up on. But Jews don't and didn't believe that the fall kept them from being able to have a relationship with God. They, they believed that, that the fall, the, what happens is, is that, yes, you've fallen, but if you do the things God says, and if you study his word, then you'll be fine. But Jesus comes to these learned people who utterly reject him. So their knowledge hasn't gotten them anything at all, nor has their obedience. So Jesus says, it's got to be a work of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit from beginning to end, or you'll never come here to start with. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? So the disciples is a broader and larger group than just the twelve in John's mind. And so he says here, though, Jesus looks at the twelve and says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter answered, Lord, to whom should we go? We've got nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you're the Holy One of God. And he's drawing a distinction there that's honestly really important, because that distinction between we have believed would, would essentially say um, it, would, it would validate the, the statements that they made in the beginning, you know, the, the statements like Nathaniel made, you know, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, the, the statements that, that they all made, come, find the one, we think we've found the Messiah. And so they believed— in the same way that when we come to faith, we believe. You know, the, the Spirit bears witness to us, and therefore we, we say, yeah, I believe this. And then the goal is to move beyond just belief and then come to know. 
which is exactly what Peter says here. We have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. So our belief moved from contingent statement or conditional statement to fact, truth, something we can stand in. Now, Peter wasn't there yet. (laughs) As much as he thought he was, he wasn't there yet. So, but he had to come to know, and it's exactly the same testimony, essentially, that's given by the Samaritans later, after Jesus spent a couple of days with them. We no longer believe because you said this. Now we believe this because we've seen it for ourselves. But what it indicates is that initially we believed because of your testimony, but then what happened is we moved beyond your testimony to make it our own. And we know now because we've seen these things. And that's the way that the Christian life should go. We should go from strength to strength. We should go from belief to knowledge. We should always know more because we've, we've, we've studied more and because we've seen more. And that's one of the, the problems, I think, in the churches is that so often we don't see anything. We don't see anything at all, largely because the churches don't even believe there's anything to see. That was all done thousands of years ago, but I'm telling you, I experienced a miracle this year with Will. And so th- I, this is not the first miracle that I've ever experienced either. I've seen God do things that can't be done, and, and that strengthens my faith every time something like that happens. It's not an everyday occurrence. It wouldn't strengthen my faith if it were an everyday occurrence. We live in a broken world, but God hasn't abandoned it, and he doesn't watch us from a distance. He's intimately involved in the world today. And so when when Peter says that, it makes perfect sense that we move from belief to knowledge. And Jesus said, did I not choose you the twelve, but yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Painful, painful ending to that reading, and, and yet everybody had to be looking at one another and thinking, who's the devil here? I mean, because we know that they didn't know because we see that same thing at the Last Supper where Jesus alludes to one who's sitting at the table with me. And so is it I? Was their question? Am I the one? Am I the bad guy here? But Jesus knew. Right from the start, John says, he knew all along. In the Romans passage, Paul continues with this uh, line of argument. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul is is making a defense of himself here because what he's going to do is to say he's anguished over his people, the Jews. And so he has to say this in this way. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Because there would be people who would look at Paul and say, no, 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 those people treated you so badly, you obviously don't care about them anymore. And Paul here is saying, no, 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 in spite of everything you would think, and in spite of the way maybe you would react to all this, it's not true of me. He said, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He said, if they would bring them into the covenant for me to be accursed, then I'd go for that. Because I'm heartbroken over the fact that my people are not believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And it's the same thing that that prophets are intended to feel, is, is they're aligned with God, and that's what Paul's saying, is that I'm aligned with God because I... I'm not cut off from Christ. And the way to be aligned with God is to be aligned with the Son. 
And so he says, I wish that I could be accursed and cut off from Christ in order that they be saved. It matters that much to them. He loves them that much. And that's the attitude we as Christians are to take, even against those who persecute us. Love your enemies. They are Israelites, he says, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He says, you know, they inherited this. There would be no Christ. There would be none of these things were it not for the Israelites. So he is saying they're incredibly important. They have given us the Messiah. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, you know, we will say things now politically, for instance, in America, and then I hear it also in the church, that person is a rhino, a Republican in name only. That person's a dino, he's a Democrat in name only. Or you're a sino, a Christian in name only. C-I-N-O-R-I-N-O-D-I-N-O. And he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So these are Israelites in name only, is what Paul's saying. And not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. It's not enough to be born into the clan. And that's exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus. Nope, you've got to be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. He says, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So... Isaac was the child of the promise, not a child of the flesh. He was the child of the promise. For this is what the promise said about this time next year. I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived Isaac's wife <coughs> by one man, our father, forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And he says, election, all of this stuff, being in the kingdom, being part of the true Israel, is a complete work of God. It's not according to the flesh. It's not according to every human invention. No, it's call of God. On your life. It's does God bring you into this covenant or not? And the proof that he cites is that it's all about the promise. It's not about anything Abraham did. It's not about circumcision. It's not about da 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 da. No, it's through the promise that God made. So it depends completely on him fulfilling the promise. And then he says, when that one, that son of the promise, had two children who both obviously would have been in the covenant community. But God, prior to that, made a decision about those two children and who would be which. And so the older will serve the younger. Well, that's not the way it works. That is not the way it works at all. That's not the way the the, uh, laws of inheritance work. No, the oldest is always the most important. I tried to tell my parents that. They seemed not to care. Um, But it's, it's God's inscrutable will, you know, and and what happens is we want to know why. We want to know why. There must be something in me. There must be something in him. There must be. No. God sees something that nobody else sees, and that's exactly what the gospel lesson said, and it's exactly what the prophetic word from Jeremiah said, which is you've got to have your eyes open. You've got to be disillusioned to what you think you know in order that you can learn the truth. 
He says, what shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Does that mean he's fickle? Does that mean God has favorites? Does that mean God plays favorites? No, that's not what it means at all. It means that you can't understand why I do what I do, but you have to believe that it's good because you believe that I'm good. So you can have it one way or the other, but you can't have it both ways. So then it depends not on human will or on exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So is God unjust when, when he says that? No. He, he has said, I'm in charge of all things. There's a reason you were raised up, and I'm the one who raised you up. And, then I might, and, and it's because, so that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You can choose to go along with that, or you cannot choose to go along with that. But at the end, I'll be glorified whether that's you being drowned in the Red Sea or <laughs> converted. It's up to you. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And the, the way I think to best read that hardening thing is to say that, that we, because the word can also mean strengthen. So Pharaoh set himself as opposed to God because of what he believed. He believed he was a god. He believed that Egypt had the most powerful gods on the earth, and the proof of that was they were the most powerful kingdom on the earth. So their gods must be more powerful than other kingdoms. And what God said was, no, you have an option here, but he wasn't willing to be disillusioned. No matter what God did, he was not disillusioned to the extent that he could see the truth. He still continued to believe that he had power and strength that transcended God's power. And that's the reason he chased after the people. But God just fortified and strengthened his heart to do what he had determined to do, which is to oppose God and to oppose the people of God. Maybe today would be a good day to pray that God would disillusion you and to disillusion you from anything in this life that enchants you and anything in this life where you've been led astray by that enchantment.